Welcome to Dr. Cindy Speaks. Regular musings and reflections on politics, current events, and life as a congressional candidate. Dr. Cindy Banyer is a mom and small business owner fighting for our water, our health, our community. She's running for the people of Southwest Florida, trying to flip Florida 19 from red to blue. Listen as she speaks truth to power and gets real about being a mom and a candidate. Good evening. At least it's evening my time here. This is being recorded tonight at 9.45 p.m. on Saturday, March 21st. This is Dr. Cindy Banier, and I am here with Dr. Cindy Speaks, and I am very excited to be here to share some of the interesting things that have been going on in the world around us and the otherwise uneventful world of being home and self-isolated, where we're just mostly hanging out with kids and taking care of what needs to be done. But... um, I am looking forward to having a special guest on here with us, and um, hopefully he'll be able to join us shortly. But let me just tell you a little bit about what's been going on here. And we're seeing some interesting things happening, some promising things happening, and some rather frightening things happening in the United States. So we are heading ever closer to in the state of Florida, likely having a full um, lockdown of sorts, how that's going to be rolled out is yet to be seen and when it will. Governor DeSantis here in the state of Florida has not been particularly forthcoming with all of these preventative measures related to the COVID-19 outbreak. And he didn't even close down all the beaches or send the spring breakers home. A lot of that happened with the individual counties closing down the beaches. Like here in Lee Collier, at Lee County and Collier County, it was the local officials that ended up closing the beaches. But uh, partying was still happening in Miami. And there's been some significant outbreaks there, including the representative, the congressional representative, uh, Diaz-Ballart, being tested positive for the coronavirus already. So um, the other things that we're looking at here in Florida related to the coronavirus are just waiting to hear what's going to happen next. So the schools are closed down, the universities are closed down. Today in Lee County, we got the order to close down restaurants and then we are really getting close. So we're getting close to, you know, the next step here. And in fact, uh, agriculture commissioner, uh, Nikki Freed has been calling on Ron DeSantis to order a stay at home, um, a stay at home order for the state of Florida to prevent further exposure and, and sharing of the virus. We have set up several testing centers here in Lee, in Lee County. And Oddly enough, the hospital where there's actually an external triage for the COVID-19 suspected patients is right down the street from my house. And 
I keep hearing helicopters going over head. Now we do have them from time to time. There are people being, you know, helicopter medevaced to the hospital, but I've noticed an uptick over the last couple of days. And this could just be my imagination or it could be people who are having serious problems being medevaced there. The um, other things that we're looking at here, particularly with candidates is um, whether or not we can get on the ballot. And there's some real technical issues that we're having with all of that, um, with our petitions. And I'll talk uh, more about it when we get some of our guests on the line. And I think I see some of them coming on now. So that's very exciting. But we are kind of in an unprecedented state right now. And I was reading some very disturbing potential actions coming out of our federal government. And we are at serious risk of continuing our slide toward authoritarianism at this point. Um, The DOJ wants to roll back constitutional rights for individuals, wants to be able to hold Americans under lock and key without trial for indefinite amounts of time. And I understand that we have a lot of closures around. Courts are still deemed an essential function, though. So we still have the ability to, you know, have some level of rule of law without completely rolling back all our rights. We have to be very vigilant about this now more than ever. We have a pretty high bar anyway when it comes to getting on the ballot in the state of Florida and we have to present at least 1% of our district uh, worth of good petitions in order to qualify to get on the ballot. And that can vary um, by district, but in my district it's 5,052. And we have basically from when we set up our campaign to March 23rd, which is right around the corner here, Um, for us to get those petitions. And then there's basically a month for the local supervisor of election to verify them. And if we're in, great. If not, then we have to pay the filing fee, uh, which currently stands for congressional candidates at $10,440. So for ordinary people who are just trying to make their communities a better place, this this is a challenge for us. And, you know, in the best of days, Fundraising is hard as a candidate, but now that we're looking at the bottoming out of our economy, it's going to become increasingly challenging for candidates to get that kind of money and fundraise effectively the way that we might have been able to kind of continue to plug away uh, as we had been prior to this outbreak. So kind of looking at that, I started to connect with other candidates across the state of Florida to see what we could do to try to push back, understanding that as the virus was spreading, that doing any sort of petitioning was going to become perilous, both for our health and the health of our campaign staff and volunteers, as well as for our community at large. And that task quickly went from being really challenging to impossible as now a lot of people in the communities have been self-isolated. We're practicing social distancing 
and people are scattered uh, into their homes and businesses are closing. It's just not a conducive time for any sort of campaign, uh, campaigning, face to face events and the like. So we've been trying to convince the governor to reduce the amount of petitions needed to extend that deadline to at least 30 days after when we can have a safe public event, as well as to reduce the qualifying fees if there are any, because this is an unprecedented time. So with the the congressional deadline coming up uh, on March 23rd in the local elections, by the way, and I'm going to have our guest weigh in on this in a moment, but uh, my local supervisor of elections offices, both in Lee and Collier County are closed. So we don't even have a place to take those petitions. And um, that's going to be a challenge as well. So knowing that we're looking at a potential um, stay at home order for 30 days or more coming down the pipes for us here in Florida, a lot of other candidates have started to grow concern around this. So this weekend, we opened this initiative, which had started with myself, the Lee County Democratic Chair, and six other congressional candidates addressing a letter to Governor DeSantis to postpone the ballot petitions has now been opened up to all uh, state Senate and state reps across the state of Florida. And we have gotten an amazing response and uh, I'm very excited that we may actually be able to get this taken care of with the support of a lot of candidates around the state of Florida. So Without further ado, because I see that he is online here, I did want to um, bring on my guest for this evening, um, and that is Alan Ellison. I think, Alan, you're going to have to ask a request to call in from your side, and I can get you in. There we go. All right. Hello, Alan, are you there? I'm here. How are you doing this evening? Hi, great. Thanks. I'm so glad you were able to be here with us. We're live broadcasting here, but we're going to be able to share this broadcast widely afterwards as well. Um, But I think that we're in a very unprecedented, unprecedented time in American history, particularly if you're somebody who's trying to run a campaign. Um, And so... I want you to introduce yourself a little bit, Alan. Tell us who you are, what you're running for, and also then maybe speak a little bit about what you're seeing on the ground during this unprecedented time in American history. Hello, everyone. My name is Alan Ellison. I'm running for the United States House of Representatives to represent Florida's 17th Congressional District. And I'll tell you, this is an unprecedented time uh, in American history. Uh, we happen to be engaging in a campaign during the the, the onset of a pandemic. Uh, and I'll tell you, right now, we've had to have at least five major events uh, to be canceled. Uh, and so it's very difficult trying to campaign uh, and raise awareness about, you know, the message, who you are, uh, the issues that are at stake and the, and the things that matter to so many people. When it's when it's a time where you can't b- really be around people, 
And so as you were saying earlier, it becomes even more difficult to get the, the petition signed um, in an orderly and timely manner to be able to meet the qualifying deadline when, when you can't really be around large uh, numbers of people. And so uh, one of the things that we've been doing on the campaign trail is trying to practice uh, this social distance and um, uh, concept. And, and, you know, it feels isolating. Um, a lot of people really don't like it. People are getting cabin fever. Uh, so what we're trying to do as a campaign is to be the campaign that actually um, encourages people. Uh, we try to educate people about uh, the coronavirus and how to protect uh, themselves and their loved ones. And so the, the campaign is, has moved from a traditional uh, campaign format into more of a, uh, a digital uh, online um, format, whereby we're doing more educating and really just trying to help people uh, get prepared and stay prepared for this uh, uh, looming uh, situation. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that when I think about you and your district, and by the way, for those of you who are particularly familiar with Florida's districting, I am running for District 19, which is actually right next to Allen's district, which is 17, and part of his district actually comes right into Lee County as well. So we are connected geographically around um, our quest to help our communities and to serve but we are also connected because we are both members of the No Dem Left Behind Coalition, which is a national coalition looking to help candidates who are running as Democrats in heavily Republican districts. So that's how Ellen and I had gotten acquainted. And so we share some regional and geographic uh, similarities. One big dissimilarity between Alan and I are the com the composition of our district. So I only have two supervisor of elections, two county offices that I would have to deal with when I am getting petitioned. Alan is across nine counties. Is that right? That is absolutely correct. Nine counties, nine supervisor of elections. So tell us, you know, prior to this whole, um, thing, how would, how do you reach people across nine counties effectively? I've been seeing you everywhere. I will admit that, but tell, tell us a little bit more about that as a candidate getting to people across nine counties. Uh, it's, it's very difficult for me. The, the best way has really been uh, to go to the churches on Sunday. And because I have a, you know, I grew up in the church. I have a spiritual background. It's a very familiar setting for me. So uh, I've aggressively uh, gone to as many as six, seven churches in a day uh, to try to reach people with uh, our, our campaign message. Uh, and it's going over very well. Outside of that, it's been parades, galas, um, DEC meetings, uh, and just door-to-door -door, um, knocking and things of that nature. So uh, but, you know, with the um, with the pandemic um, situation here, all of that has come to a screeching halt. And so, as I was saying before, you know, it's it's going to a more digital uh, by phone, by social media, uh, by text message. And now uh, the podcast scenario. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why I started this podcast uh, last week. And I figured, all right, let me reach out to other candidates and people around us so that not only can we continue our work sharing our message and trying to connect with people in our community, but also to a certain extent to try to document what's going on here during this time. Because I really think that we're going to look back to whatever the new world looks like after we get through this outbreak. And we're going to look back at where we were before and how we got here. And it's going to be, you know, quite historical. So I was trying to capture some of that through this podcast and, you know, especially with us having this vantage point of being candidates, like I really think, and Alan, I'll let you comment on this in a minute, but I really think that not only are we at this point in time on the forefront of fighting for our communities, but we are on the forefront of fighting for our country, for the rule of law, for the way that we need to shape our institutions. And we have to continue that, that fight and speak up for those pieces and the nuances in our system that I think a lot of other people are going to overlook at this point in time because we're, we're scared and we're trying to take care of our family. So I don't know if you, how you feel about that, Alan, but I mean, maybe tell us a little bit about what you see your role in relation to our democracy at this point in time. Well, I believe that our democracy has been under attack for quite some time. And the thing about uh, whenever you have uh, our uh, political uh, and social institutions under constant attack, I believe, you know, that our government and our constitution are only as strong as the people that believe in it. And when people stop believing in those those institutions and those, um, you know, our way of life, then we end up in a place that is unfamiliar territory and it's quite dangerous. And so, you know, with the current administration just completely overlooking, you know, uh, the, the rule of law, where we are, uh, how we, you know, how we got here, understanding history, uh, just understanding the Constitution and, and the framework and how our founding fathers created it to be you know, reflexive and, and flexible and all of these things that allow us to have the oldest constitution and system of government uh, on earth, you know, it just, it, it's mind boggling uh, to say the least. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we do have an obligation as candidates and as uh, future leaders to help pull the country back together. And we do that through educating uh, the, the public. You know, you're a political scientist, I'm a political scientist, but not every candidate and not every congressional figure is a political scientist. So it is uh, it is on us to make sure that people understand how government should work, uh-huh. not not what's going on now, but how it should work. Uh, a perfect example of that is uh, just looking at this this pandemic and how it is affecting not only our health. Uh, but also our finances uh-huh. and our jobs and, and the negative impact that it's having across the country to understand that there are leaders that are trying to place uh, remedies in, in, in front of us to make sure that we are taken care of only to have members of other members of Congress 
work against it, like the Corona 40, which includes my uh, congressman who I'm trying to uh, unseat. This gentleman voted against a coronavirus funding bill that would actually help provide for um, the things that people are going to lose, whether it's access to health care, whether it's access to food, access to financial resources for their businesses. I mean, this is where we are. And you have people that are working against, you know, where we're headed. And it just doesn't make any sense. And so, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure that you have some some thoughts on this issue. Uh, I would definitely love to hear, you know, from a true professional who, who who understands how government is set up and how it's supposed to work. Um, but I tell you, just watching CNN and Fox and all of these news agencies and see the misinformation, uh, the disinformation and all of these things, you know, it's it's really uh, disheartening. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. And and probably what Alan is referring to, uh, that I'm the professional on it, but that I actually teach American government at Florida Gulf Coast University as well. So, yeah, I am somebody who's pretty much a fan of how our government is set up. And, you know, like Alan was saying, too, that it's it's historic in the way that our democracy has evolved. And what I tell my students in both my American government class and my global studies class is, there's all these little things in our government that are really brilliant, actually, that we overlook all the time because we're busy and we have things in our life going on. And we kind of take for granted that we have all these really brilliant little things that take care of us, like like trash, right? Even though that's a very municipal issue. The fact that we have a system that's paid for through you know, taxes and user fees and a combination of that, that takes our trash away and, and keeps our, our areas clean is amazing. And um, I usually tell the story with my students of um, the rolling dumpster fires in Jakarta. And this was when I was doing my master's research there, they do not have a similar you know, public, you know, waste management system. And so everybody has to burn their own trash. And when it's time to get rid of everything, they have dumpsters that are literally on wheels and they would roll them out to the street and set them on fire. Um, And I've seen them like rogue rolling dumpster fires across the streets of Jakarta. And so I use that as an example to say, hey, you know, we don't think about the trash removal every day, but it's really important um, that we have it because, oh, my God, how dangerous is it to have a rolling dumpster fire, right? Um, So, um, but, you know, we have it all the way up. You know, we have the EPA that keeps our environment safe. Actually, the Department of Education not only helps our higher ed, but our K-12 and put some structure around it, as well as to make sure that we're addressing things like, you know, access for students who are differently abled or equity and making sure that we do not have a bifurcated system or a segregated system that's dramatically leaving students behind. They work to work with local systems to regulate that. And, um, So I get really dismayed, for instance, from the top to bottom of the Trump administration, the whole philosophy that we have to dismantle these institutions that we've built 
because because we don't think they work well anymore. It's really just ignorance because when you look at other countries that don't have the sophistication of our government, they wish that they had some of these institutions because, and like we're seeing right now, it's a matter of life and death in certain circumstances. We have building codes because people died. We have labor rights because people died. We have safety standards on cars because people died. These were not things that came about because, gee, wouldn't it be fun to regulate that stuff? That's not what happened. It was a reaction to people dying. So we have the CDC because we thought it was a good idea to use our investment in tax dollars to help keep people healthy and safe from pandemics and other diseases in our country. And when we have an administration that has such little care for things like that, we get here, right? Exactly. We get here. So there's off my, you know, Professor Cindy box for a moment on like the value of government. But you're right. I get really inspired about this kind of thing. And it's one of the reasons why I'm running for Congress, because I want to bring that um, admiration for our systems. And yeah, they're not perfect. But I mean, let's not just throw them all away because they need improvement. Things always can be better. Um, And so the other, you know, and I'll throw it back to Alan here in just a moment, but I'm really worried about these kind of backdoor erosions of our democracy and elections coming up here. Um, you know, in the state of Florida, where not only are, you know, Alan and I and, and dozens and dozens of other candidates across the state, now we're just trying to even be able to qualify at all for the ballot. Like some, some candidates, are, they won't even be able to raise the fees from this point on. And they won't be able to get the petitions. So you're looking at incumbents only or wealthy, self-funded or big pack funded candidates only being able to get on the ballot. Let's take that a step further to what, how are we going to vote? <laughs> now, this is a several months down the line. But if you've been reading some of these projections, we're looking at kind of coming in and out of self-isolations for potentially up to 18 months. So there are other groups that are trying to push for essentially a mandatory um, at-home ballot system in the state of Florida. So, Alan, now I want to throw it back to you. So what do you think? What do you, when you're looking at that, that landscape of, you know, the, the critical components of our election that are going to be ignored? Like, I mean, I think that right now closing the uh, elections division and closing the supervisors of elections are pretty big oversight in terms of like how we're actually supposed to get this thing done if we could get it done. But what other kinds of things like that are you looking at or are you concerned about um, in terms of making sure that our elections stay free and fair in the state of Florida? Well, let, let me let me back up for a minute. <clears throat> One of the things that I've always um, raised an issue with is the fact that uh, when you're running for the United States Congress, uh, that position is um, it's it's defined by the Constitution because it's a federal office. There is a criteria that the Constitution uh, sets forth that determines if a person is qualified to run for uh, the United States Congress. 
my problem is once the Constitution defines and sets forth the qualifications for running for this office, I don't like that the state of Florida then turns around and charges a $10,440 ballot fee mm. before you can even get your name on the ballot. And if, and in my district, if you don't pay the ballot fee, then you have to get as many as 9,000 um, 9, petitions. Wow. Now, I've gone down this road before. And when you have a Republican-controlled supervisor of elections uh, mm. at the state level, uh, there are all kind of tricks and, and ways to disenfranchise uh, even candidates. And mm -hmm. so it becomes a situation where you have a, a state with a very rich history. And Florida is the number one uh, most corrupt state in the union when it comes to these types of things, whether it be adding up the lawsuits or adding up the um, uh, various types of um, you know, discrimination charges and all these different things. But Florida's number one. And we have a very rich history of voter suppression, very rich history of candidate suppression. And so I just don't like the state taking the Constitution and then trying to rewrite it and make it about a money thing. And right there, it's a situation where you have, you know, people from different um walks of life, whether they're brown, black or brown people who simply can't afford uh -huh. $10,000. And when you look at um, the institutional racism that exists in that system, uh, it becomes very clear in why I am the only black candidate outside of the Congressional Black Caucus members, but I'm the only black male candidate in the entire state of Florida that's running for this federal office. And one of the reasons is it's because of these, you know, uh, $10,000 ballot fees. This isn't something that other states practice, but Florida does. And so I would take it a step further to not only get rid of this ridiculous uh, ballot access uh, petition signing thing, but get rid of the, the qualifying fee altogether. Huh. You know, there, there are some states that actually give you the money as a candidate to run a campaign. It huh. shouldn't be. Uh, it, you know, it should be based on can you get enough votes to get you in office? Not about how much money you can raise to pay for a ballot fee uh -huh. to be on the ballot. You know, it's it's just ridiculous. And so I just wanted to put um, my two cents in there and also go back to what you were saying about uh, our agencies and institutions that are in place uh, for the purpose of giving us a better quality of life like the EPA, for example. Uh -huh. I remember uh, back in October, I was over in Africa and I was meeting with some heads of states about their waste management program. And they were very um, excited about possibly getting a, uh, a program like our EPA because they didn't have one in the country that I was in. And so um, I had read about their waste problem, but it was nothing like going there and, and seeing the waste literally everywhere, my mind immediately went back to what I learned in history uh, with the, uh, the pandemic that took place uh, in 1347, which was originally based on lack of waste management services okay. that ultimately ended up having um, a situation where the environmental 
problem became a health problem yep. with the uh, the bubonic plague or the Black Death, mm-hmm. which killed a third of the world's population. And right now we are projecting that a third of America's population will get uh, the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And back in 1347, a third of the world's population died because of that um, virus. And the problem with it is, is that it took 200 years for the earth to replenish that population. And so when I told the, the, the people, the heads of state in Africa, that we have to clean up this waste before it turns into a health problem, only to come back home to have our current congressman, who I'm trying to unseat, put a proposal on the floor to dismantle the EPA. Mm. I mean, it just does not make any sense. Um, And so this is why I'm running, uh, to make sure that we have protections for uh, federal agencies that give us the safety that we need for our environment, for our air, for our water. I mean, this is about our future, our children's future. And if we can't do the, the bare necessities now to protect their future, then what are we doing? Why is he even in office? I think this is something the, the, the public needs to understand. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that you have that background and experience of of going and engaging with other governments and countries around the world and really seeing that that juxtaposition too and um in, uh, my background is actually in, in international development originally before i moved to the united states so i had worked with more than 25 countries around the world helping their governments to become more efficient and effective and a lot of it had to do with these really basic fundamental public administration components mm-hmm. that we have in the united states that both uphold rule of law preserve public participation and have public interest in mind when they function. And I, you know, I, when I came back to the United States after living abroad for eight years and I realized the deterioration of a lot of those systems, I was really dismayed. I came back, you know, I've been teaching this to other countries saying, look, this is what the United States did. They have a strong set of institutions. This is how you do it. And I come back and I see this rot, this corruption, low level corruption. And now we have high level corruption on front street on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Right. We, are at a crisis moment with our democracy as well. So, but I do want to kind of just put a pin on that because I do want to pivot back to my friend, Alan here. I want him to tell me a little bit more and share a little bit more about his experience at working in Africa. Um, Because for those of you that have not heard about Alan or met him before, He has done many things in his life that are extremely fascinating. And so I want him to tell me a little bit about being a farmer. Well, I'll tell you, um, when I went to Africa, I went to Africa for the purpose of uh, bringing over some micronutrients uh, to help a farm that was about nine acres. And on nine acres, they were um, trying to get 12 different food crops to grow. Um, the ground is, was made of clay and they were having a very hard time and getting 
really anything to grow. So the micronutrients that I took over there um, was able to, you know, help uh, increase the fertilization of the soil. And uh, they were able to start producing some um, some food crops. And though that particular farm was to feed uh, 150,000 people in a little small village. Uh, but also it was a pilot to get uh, the heads of state to understand that um, if we could do that on one farm, what could we do to feed more people if the government were to give up uh, more land so that we can duplicate that success? Uh, the other thing was um, in that part of the world, uh, there's a, a tribe called the Fulani uh, tribe. Uh, they, the Fulani tribe and the herdsmen or the, um, the farmers were fighting over limited resources. Uh-huh. And so um, whenever farmers would have their land, the herdsmen would, al- would let their cows eat off of the land that was for human consumption. And there would be clashes that would take place. And so um, I think in a year's time, I think 1,600 people had died in those clashes. So part of my program uh, that I took over there was about um, not just um, mechanized farming, but it was also hydroponics farming. So I got a chance uh, to do some hydroponics farming to show uh, the governor of Emu State uh, that we could grow uh, seven different food crops hydroponically in a matter of weeks to be able to feed um, uh, the Fulani herdsmen's cows so that they didn't have to encroach upon the land of the farmers that were farming food for human consumption. And that was about trying to uh, bring peace to the region. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, th- you know, I grew up in, a, in an agricultural community, which is in Hardy County. And so, uh, we we learned it in school. We did it, you know, working growing up. I got a chance to, you know, work on farms to feed cattle and and just learn all of these different things about, you know, agriculture. So the thing that I grew up doing, like it was just second nature, uh, I was able to help teach and train people in another part of the world. Uh, the things that I learned growing up, you know, just doing for fun or doing for, you know, to help out with family and everything. It It was really an amazing uh, uh, thing. And so uh, now that I'm back home, I'm getting photos all the time of the okra that's growing now and and the tomatoes and the rice and all of these different types of things. And so um, I wanted to be able to, uh, you know, duplicate those successes here. I haven't had a chance. I've been talking to different farmers and talking to different uh, people here, but uh, I do know that a lot of people here want to go over there and do some of that type of stuff. So, you know, it's, it's been good. And, um, you know, it's just part of, you know, a a small part of my background, which is like you said earlier, it's very diverse. I've done a Mm -hmm. lot of different things in life, but, uh, and that's one that I'm very proud of. And and I was talking to uh, my campaign manager, uh, this morning about, you know, the fact that I really take my hat off to ranchers and farmers because that type of work uh, it is not for the weak. It is something that, you know, uh, I'm glad that I'm a political scientist because it's bat breaking labor. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't want to be doing that for the rest of my life. 
but I do um, <laughs> I do respect it, and I do know that my district is um, is very heavy when it comes to agriculture. But we're experiencing also some problems with our citrus industry here. Uh, we have this, the citrus greening, which is a bacteria that is negatively affecting um, our, our, our orange groves and stuff like that. So we're going to have to start looking at alternative uh, food crops to replace what we're losing from the orange from the oranges and stuff. So, um, you know, it's very it's very dynamic, very comprehensive. Um and it's something that I want to be able to lead on once we're in Congress. So, yeah, I like that a whole lot. And and I love how you were talking about how there's so many interconnections between the things that we do in this area, not just you and I, but we as people that, you know, we're fighting for resources a lot of times. That's where conflict arises almost every single time around the world. It's around a struggle for resources and the solution isn't always more fighting, right? Exactly. It's it's becoming uh, innovative in the space to solve the issue related to resources and resource management and access to resources. And um, so I, I like how you wrap that in because I think it's a really important thing for people to think about, for people who who have not worked in that space. And, and I'll just tell you and everyone who's listening that um, I was, you know, a suburban girl who spent several years in rural development and I'm a terrible farmer. I'm not going to lie. I'm a, just an absolute terrible farmer. I try real hard. Um, but what I'm, am good at is helping to explain some of those connections around why it is valuable to have the uh, industries that we have, that why it's valuable to have, um, you know, the rural lifestyle the way that it is, why it's valuable to bring community to the table and have connectedness and understanding across multiple components in a community or in a district, because none of us work in a silo. We don't work without connections to other people. And so, yes, we need to have farming and agriculture and we need to have a respect for the other industries. And then like in Alan's example, the, you know, the, the herdsmen and what kinds of stresses that can come about from that, but that ultimately we're here sharing the same space. So I am usually finding myself kind of in the mix with all of those folks, but ultimately I couldn't, I couldn't grow anything to save my life. And uh, I've had a house plant for 10 years that survives on benign neglect. So I'm just going to leave my farming acumen right there. But um, I do appreciate that uh, Alan, you talking to us about that. It's been a very, um, it was a very interesting story to hear you tell about that. Um, but I just also want to go back to just as we're, wrapping up here, just thinking about being a candidate, being ostensibly a regular person still, and trying to continue to think of how we're going to take care of our family and how we're going to try to run our campaigns. Because even when I was speaking with you earlier, Alan, you're still working to make uh, ends meet and earn income from your family. Is that right? That's absolutely right. So tell us a little bit about that, because it sounds like the, the work that you do might be affected if we have a lockdown. Yeah, so I own a uh, salon and spa, 
Um, I'm a cosmetologist. I've been licensed uh, since 2000. Um, and so I, um, I recently opened my business about a year and uh, three months now. And so uh, it's a new business. Um, and so, you know, people have started to um, cut back uh, because of the social distancing. Uh, but also, uh, we're getting ready to probably close doors because um, uh, it's really getting serious. I know that there is at least one confirmed case as of today in my city. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know how it is. Once there's a confirmed case, there's probably other cases that haven't uh, been tested or been confirmed. But, um, you know, it's starting to double in some parts of the re- in some parts of uh, the country. And once you start seeing that, then you know that it is getting extremely serious. Mm-hmm. And so I want to be safe. I want to keep people around me safe. I believe that I'm a very healthy person. I believe that my body can probably withstand anything. But just because my body can withstand anything doesn't mean that I can't carry something to someone that I love mm-hmm. who might not be able to. So, um, you know, it's very important uh, that we get whatever resources are available to help us get through the tough times uh, ahead. And that is really why I am so um, upset with the current congressman who voted against uh, the coronavirus funding bill. Uh, because when I go downtown to my business, I look at all of the other businesses around there. And some of them have have already closed up shop. Uh, One of my clients today told me that she just lost her job because her um, business went ahead and just fired everyone because they're not going to be able to keep the doors open after this 30 day shutdown period. And so, you know, it is getting very, very serious. And we know that it's small businesses that are the backbone to our economy. And with small businesses closing and most of them working and, uh, and, and operating literally from month to month, mm-hmm. there's no telling how many businesses are going to have to close down. And so, um, you know, we need to make sure that when we do get to Congress, that we are working diligently to, to put policies into place that come right back and help these small business owners. I know right now the SBA generates about $2 billion a year off of tax dollars for the purpose of relending to uh, small business owners. But the process to get access to those funds are uh, is so strenuous that it deters most people from even doing the paperwork. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I want to be able to do is to streamline the paperwork process, reduce the paperwork and make it easier for people to get access uh, to the funds to start their business or to grow their businesses because America does better when small businesses have the resources they need to go out and create more jobs. And, uh, you know, part of my background is corporate development. I've set up over 300 businesses in the state of Florida uh, for other people. And I've helped to manage uh, most of those businesses. So I understand what these small businesses are faced with. And uh, our current congressman hasn't helped us out at all, as well as 39 other uh, Republican congressmen from around the country. They call them the Corona 40. 
So please uh, look them up and see how they have worked against uh, small business, how they have worked against our children in school who need access uh, to to uh, school lunches and, and how they have worked against uh, people and their health care uh, with this particular funding bill. Um, and we need to we need to get rid of them. We can do better. There are candidates literally across this country, especially those in the no dim left behind that are running in red districts that have a new path forward, that have fresh ideas uh, and that can really make a positive impact in their respective districts and respective states. Uh, I, I encourage each and every one of you listening to this podcast uh, to go to No Dem Left Behind and check out who these candidates are and, uh, and send them a donation. It's going to be very difficult to campaign during this pandemic. And so we're going to really depend on contributions from people from all over this country to help us spread our word, spread our message, and raise awareness on the issues that matter uh, to people through the digital platforms that exist. This is where we are now. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this is the this is the new thing that I guess uh, candidates going to have to uh, step up to the plate. So when you asked me tonight, I had just got home from work. I had just got finished doing about six uh, styles on different people and I was tired. But I understood the importance of being on this uh, this platform, this digital platform, because this is what it's going to take. It's going to take us coming together. It's going to take us. Uh, reaching across the aisle, finding the common threads that bind us all together and using that as the platform of togetherness to move forward uh, and and make a difference. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Alan. Um, And, you know, I do appreciate that you were able to kind of hop on. Um, You know, I think that it's just really important that we continue to send these messages out. Um, and without the ability to see our constituents face to face, um, and see people who would be willing to support our campaign, we need to have some way to reach them. So I really appreciate you coming here for that. The other thing, just before I do part and give all everybody's website address and all that kind of stuff, I just wanted to say that I really appreciate Alan, your focus on small businesses. I know that in Southwest Florida, we have about 91% of our businesses are small businesses with 20 full-time employees or less. So this shutdown, a long-term lockdown is going to really significantly affect our local economy. There is, it's going to be exceedingly difficult for these businesses to continue to stay open. But I just wanted to share, there is one thing that some small entrepreneurs in our area are trying to do and that's support one another. So I definitely encourage you to check out hashtag keep them open challenge. So this is something that's going on around Facebook right now, but the concept is like this. You go to a small business, maybe you buy something online or you do what I did. And I went to my friends at millennial brewery and brewing company um, who are some, you know, they, we have kids the same age. Our kids went to school together. So I've kind of watched them, you know, build this dream of theirs up. And um, they have uh, merchandise and they have curbside beer service. And so I said, all right, I'm going to go and do that because 
That sounds pretty good on a lockdown or on an isolated Saturday night. Um, but uh, so what you do though is you 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 know you go to that business and then you hashtag keep them open challenge. You tell everybody that you went to the business or you got this great product or you you know gave them some additional funds, bought gift certificates, whatever, and then you challenge five friends to do the same thing. So it's kind of this you know, let's keep our local businesses going kind of thing. And um, I really hope that that can at least get some folks through this time and maybe it can help to get them all the way through the challenging times uh, to come. But I want to share that with everybody as well. So uh, hashtag keep them open challenge. But um, yeah. <laughs> let's go ahead and end it for here because I think that probably Alan and I could talk here for hours and hours on end, but there has to be an end to everything, even the most amazing thing. So thank you so much, Alan Ellison, candidate for Florida Congressional District 17, for coming and joining us tonight. We, uh, You can be reached further at www.ellisonforcongress.com. And also definitely check out our coalition, No Dem Left Behind, um, dot com. You can check us out there uh, a little bit more about Alan and I are part of that candidates running across the country that are part of that coalition as well. And is there any other final parting thought or anything coming up, Alan, that you want to share with our listeners? I just want to thank you for uh, talking about um, the local businesses and the manner that you did. Um, but the other thing is, there are going to be a lot of people that are going to be out of work and they're going to need some income coming in. So uh, Amazon is getting ready to hire a hundred thousand people to work from home processing orders um, using their computers. So uh, if people uh, are out of work and probably don't know if they're going to be able to go back to work, but still need to pay the bills and still need to generate some income, um, Amazon.com, they're hiring right now, 100,000 people in the U.S. Great. Absolutely fantastic. You know, there's going to be some shifts for sure, and we're going to keep fighting for that. I know that both Alan and I have said here that we're making commitments to make sure that our constituents and people who are following us are well-informed. I'm in the process of developing a space on my website where you'll be able to find information about the outbreak as well as additional links to support because that is important to me as well, making sure that we, we get through this the best that we can together. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Don't forget also to visit me, uh, my website. Um, you can find both Alan and I also on Twitter. Uh, you can you follow the coalition at hashtag NDLB 2020 and um, I'm at SW, hashtag SWFLmom2020 because I put the fact that I'm a mom on Front Street because I think we need more people who are family people like Alan and I and small business owners like Alan and I who are really willing and able to continue to serve and keep an eye on our democracy and fight that battle uh, for the people to make sure that we have free and fair elections and the people truly have a voice. So thank you so much, everybody, for joining us here today. And when you listen to this later as well, I appreciate it and hope to hear you and see you next time. Thanks. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Dr. Cindy Speaks. If you'd like to learn more about her campaign, go to cindybanyay.com or connect with her directly at vote at cindybanyay.com. We love connecting with people. Contents of this podcast are paid for and approved by friends of Sandy Banyay.